Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. So what we did, we did that, Andre and I did that. In fact, I learned that from Andre. I pass it on that character. When I pray, I don't pray to be fearless. I pray to be brave. So we, we talk, talk about bravery. Now that means something to them. We would talk about Andre when he won his first slam against Goran Ivanisevic, we're crying out loud, in the finals of Wimbledon. Still of the best one, best one I've seen. Of all things, he overcame everything you could possibly imagine. This podcast, 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, is brought to you by our sponsor, SOS Rehydrate. It's an organic drink mix as effective as an IV drip. It's proven by science and used by elite athletes because only the best will do for elite athletic performance. So for all your hydration needs, our listeners today get 15% off if you enter the code MENTALTOUGHNESS at INEEDSOS.COM. This episode is brought to you by Some Sleep. Go to GetSome.COM. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.COM. We all deserve a better night's sleep. You drink one can 30 minutes before bed, and it's that simple. This awesome blend lets you not only fall asleep fast, but then wake up feeling absolutely refreshed, not hungover or foggy. You're going to absolutely love this product. And in fact, if you go to GetSome.com and enter in the promo code DrRobBell, D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 10% off. Guarantee you're going to love this product. Go there right away. You know, he actually needs no introduction. So this is fascinating. Uh, I got to meet this uh, coach at the USTA and uh, was just fascinated, you know, by his, uh, by his heart, uh, by his wisdom, and, uh, and that he just took the time to, uh, to speak with me. And I'm so glad to have him as a guest today. The reason why he needs no introduction is because this was Andre Agassi's strength coach from roughly 1989 until Andre Agassi retired. Um, our, uh, our guest today is a strength coach, fitness trainer, um, still resides in Las Vegas, and uh, is just an incredible, incredible person, and I'm so excited to have this uh, individual with us today. The guest is Gil Reyes, and coach, before we get started, I have to ask, man, I know you have athletes out there right now training. Are any of them doing the Magic Mountain? You know, we have a young man literally, and he's on the other side of this door right now. We just finished his his workout. A young man from uh, Ohio State University who transferred. He's here now uh, as as an athlete uh, uh, at UNLV, and so um, he's he's kind of getting a quick taste because they all come here interested. They come in here curious, and they all know the story and the legend of Andre Agassi. 
but they are stories that I'm so proud to tell because I had the honor and, and the privilege of being alongside Andre the whole way. And they look now, and it's very hot today in Las Vegas, so they get a chance to hear of the time in here in the gym. Then we'd go out on the court and practice his movement. Then we'd go up to the mountain and run the Magic Mountain. And uh, I think the, the lore, the myth, immediately becomes one of those brutal realities to these guys that there's no shortcut, Dr. Bell, and you know that. There's no shortcut uh, who these guys are and kind of where they're going. There's no shortcut. So we have, interestingly enough, we have a few of those situations at play right now. We we keep them coming, Dr. Bell. We keep them coming. There's, uh, we're now with some some players in, in baseball, a young man who's having a great season so far with the Los Angeles Dodgers. His name is Alex Verdugo. He spends his entire off-seasons here with us now. And initially he was, I, I won't say enigmatic, but a little hard to figure, I think, uh, until we realized that, hold on a second, if you listen long enough, they'll tell you who they are. They'll tell you what, what makes them go if you just listen long enough. And so coaching some of these athletes, as, uh, as you and I have discussed in the past, can you be a good teacher if you're not a good learner? Can you teach discipline if you don't have it? And can you teach patience if you don't have it? And so they have taught me that I must become a good learner and I must be more patient and that I must certainly exercise all of the discipline that I can. And in doing so, coaching them becomes actually pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. I actually heard him on uh, Jim Rome's show a couple weeks ago. He talked uh, about you. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah he, and he's a good one. The answers were all there. The answers were there with him. And we spend so much time. He loves hearing the stories of Andre in, my, in this very same gym where we would work out for two and a half hours and then we would sit and talk for another two and a half hours about this, about the journey, about the character, let's say, that will be challenged, the character that will be honed and strengthened in here. So Alex loved hearing those stories and in doing so, he's writing a pretty nice story for himself right now. He's you know, like the previous weekend on the ESPN, that Saturday night game, he had that walk-off home run in the ninth inning. And then the next night, Sunday night, uh, against the Cubs, he had that game-winning diving catch. And then last weekend against the Rockies, I think he had two home runs in one game. So, yeah, he's – I love – you and I do this, Dr. Bell. We love seeing them where they are at first and where they can go. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's a gem for sure. So in, in terms of when it, when you mentioned there, like the conversations, I mean, working out for a couple hours and having the conversations and the character. Yes. The journey that the athletes go through, the struggle, the adversity, the ups and the downs. Um, what is it that have you found to, to be that it factor? And I'm sure there's, it's different in, in a lot of different people. What have you found? I mean, I mean, how does that it factor then come out to play? Truth. Truth, literally the truth. I'll give you an example. In my, let's say, my very sincere zeal or, or really my, my greatest hopes of teaching them confidence, you try to teach them to be fearless. Well, the truth taught me that that's not possible. 
somebody like myself, let's say, no matter how many times I tell them, you got to be fearless out there. You got to, well, I can say that all day, but then when the moment comes that they feel fear, which most of us as humans face it in one way or another, then then not only do my words get dismissed because, hold on, he said there would be no fear, here's the fear, but any credibility or let's say the, the, the grit of the words dissipates pretty quickly. So what we did, we did that, Andre and I did that. In fact, I learned that from Andre. I pass it on that character. When I pray, I don't pray to be fearless. I pray to be brave. Mm -hmm. So we, we talk, talk about bravery. Now that means something to them. We would talk about Andre when he won his first slam against Goran Ivanisevic for crying out loud in the finals of Wimbledon. Still of the best one, best one I've seen. <laughs> of all things, he overcame everything you could possibly imagine. If someone said to you, you get to win your first Grand Slam. And Andre, of course, was one of the greatest, certainly a baseliners, which that was what most people were characterizing, characterizing him as. Then you're on grass, in the, let's say in the domain of the servant volley guys, certainly the era of the servant volley guys. And all you have to do is win. To win is break Goran Ivanisevic, six or five lefty. <laughs> right. All you have to do is break a serve, and you win Wimbledon, the championship. Goodness gracious, he did. But he he overcame the challenge. So we discussed that, that they are going to face fear. Now, if they happen to be fearless, then that's really, really good. I would almost wonder if they might not be missing out on a pretty cool emotion, a pretty cool gift. Fear is somewhere in there with love as far as one of our deepest innate emotions. And yet what we do with it, how we face it. So that's what we talk about. We talk about, let's say, the the understanding of the quest. Alex loved it because we're dreamers in here, Dr. Bell. We're dreamers. When you come in here, bring in your dreams with you. Uh, uh, just drop them off in here on the floor and let's let's look at them. Only thing is, Andre and I determined we are dreamers. Let's just make sure that your backbone is as busy as your wishbone. So come mm -hmm. in, man. Come in with big wishes. Then let's go to work. And that, that's what that. we spent a lot of time. Yeah, that's what we spent a lot of time doing in here. Coach, um, one of my favorite quotes from you, um, just from the, the afternoon we got to spend together, um, some battles aren't worth fighting even if you win, but the favorite part of that is some battles are worth fighting even if you lose. Absolutely. Can you, can you talk about that? Absolutely. Now, that will be on the field, off the field. That'll be what gets you there. In life, there are some battles – they're just not worth fighting, even if you win. Then again, I think, I think about I think about that with my wife. <laughs> exactly. That, we would all be wise to to put that up at the top of the list. Exactly. Then again, in life, there are some battles that are worth fighting, even if you lose, and that comes in conviction, confirmation, declaration. Other people, others get to describe you, but only you get to define you. And that's what I mean, those battles of character, who you are. How am I gonna handle this? How am I gonna handle my disappointments um, on the field or off the field? My, let's say, sadness, my emotions. And those are uh, daily battles. But then again, there might be some battles of will, but that you must stand for something in which you believe, 
or as you are declaring yourself to be a certain, let's say, uh, of a certain character, things will not always go your way because of that. But that was a battle worth fighting, even though we lost. So it's literally not just a declaration, but that ultimate confrontation. I teach our athletes all of the time. Confrontation can often reveal itself as education in disguise. And we engage in that. I, even in some of the, the current themes of politics, wow, our country, boy, you just, if you want to get a good heated discussion going, just get into politics and there we go. But in listening, the ability to listen, even to something that you are greatly opposed, you might emerge more greatly informed, more greatly educated. So I might lose a debate, but I might garner from that loss something really, really important to myself, to my, let's say, my either development or my own definition of who I am. Then again, of course, comes those on-court or on-field confrontations where, man, you, you decided to go toe-to-toe with the greats in, in, on the basketball court, on the football field, on the tennis court, and you came up short. But what a glorious battle. What a glorious battle you fought. Now, you, you didn't win on the score, but there was something about the way you took on that challenge that is glorious. We love that word, glorious. There's something I felt today that was glorious. Did it go your way? No, actually it didn't, but it was glorious. I feel so fulfilled right now because of the reasons that I undertook that, let's say, challenge or that debate or that confrontation. The reasons were of, let's say, noble character or certainly right versus wrong. And we can live with those. We really can. Andre and I, even to simplify it on the court, there were matches that if we lost just because we were outplayed, we can live with that. We just didn't want to lose because we were unprepared. That Because that's, that is in our control. So those losses were very, they were not palatable at all. When you play your best and the other person just, just outguns you, hey, too good and hope you see him next week and go at it again. So a quick question. In early in Andre's career, then, you know, he loses his first three major finals. Yes. And um, can you talk about, you know, can you talk about that? Because I mean, that's three of them, right? I mean, that gets difficult. I don't think it ever gets easier. Um, what do you remember about those times, like still trying to kind of break through on that, that very first one? Uh, I remember now, the pain, literally the pain literally how badly they hurt but we earned andre and i will talk about it afterwards do you did we earn that cry are we worthy of those tears meaning anyone can go into something and not get their way and cry be upset get mad have a tantrum anyone can i used to say if you want to see that in play walk up to a two-year-old and take their candy. You're going to see the same reaction most of us might be inclined to have on the, on the tennis court after a big loss. But if you can sit there and swallow it and swallow it, the pain of it, because we tried. And we did. We, we tried. We were as ready leading up to those finals. We were ready. We, so the fact that 
we it just didn't go our way. I remember the pain, and as we discussed, actually we do deserve it. We we did earn those by how hard we worked to get there, and that's what I remember. Then, of course, of all of those, maybe not the most poignant, maybe not necessarily the the most significant, but June sixth, nineteen ninety nine, Paris, France, after we had lost twice already in the finals there, and at the French Open. And June 6, 1999, against Andre Medvedev. Here we go, baby. There it is. Yeah, we were down two sets to none there. So all that was going through my mind is, again, how can I possibly be of service to this young athlete, this young warrior? And at that point, of course, 10 years after the previous disappointment. At this point, Andre was now, he was 29 at that point when he won the French Open. The disappointment of the previous go-rounds in the finals, that was on my mind more taking care of him, looking out for him. I would want to know that, Dr. Bell. If I was out there putting my heart on the line, I would want to know that somebody was looking out for me. Can, that can, you, can, you, talk, can you talk about that, Coach? Like, what do you mean? His, when he's out there, and once mm-hmm. again, we talk about our, we talk about emotions, yes. literally. We talk about stress. We talk about fear. I haven't met that person yet who would be completely impervious or oblivious to fear. I haven't met that person in moments that are, are so big, one way or another. Of course, it, it, I'm sure it, it man, manifests itself one way or another. I just happen to know Andre, how much that moment meant to him because now... You can say, at the age of 29, when he won the French Open, in all sense of reality, you're not going to have many more looks at it. You just, just in those days, just kind of the way the math works, right? The chronology, the battle against, uh, of course, Father Time. Right. But I was wanting to look out for him to make sure that if it didn't go our way, not that I was planning and figuring on losing. I just needed to be ready for the possibility, if we did, how could I be of service to him, to to help him, right? So that was going through my mind. On the other hand, I needed to remind him, needed to remind him by eye contact, by thumps to the chest, thumps to the heart, by a greeting of the teeth, that he was ready for this moment, which indeed he was. He was different now. You know, uh, in terms of the, the growth, the evolution, how we knew each other. He once had a, one of the greatest bits of wisdom that I've ever, ever garnered from Andre, and there are millions of them. A few years ago, three or four years ago, as you know, uh, we, he was coached initially by Nick Boletari, and then, of course, for the longest periods of time afterwards, it was Brad Gilbert, who is, you see on ESPN uh, for the uh, tennis commentary, and then Darren Cahill, also seen on ESPN for the tennis commentary, right? So they were they asked Andre well after his retirement. Okay, you and this was by ESPN, so they were trying to make it a light moment because they were colleagues of both Brad Gilbert and Darren Cahill. He was asked the question, okay, of the two, Brad Gilbert and Darren Cahill, who's the better coach? And Andre very seriously looked at the at the interviewer and said, well, it's not possible to compare. They coached 
two different guys, me. I love that. I love that. He changed. He was indeed more ready. The let's say the the weights, the burdens. Some people might say the demons uh, from the past. They were slain. The dragon was slain. He was ready to fight the the fight on different terms on his turf. The newness initially, that part was gone. He truly was a battle-tested, battle-ready warrior. He really was. I'm not saying that we enjoyed the process by which we became battle-ready, meaning the losses. There was nothing enjoyable about it, but he was ready. He was ready. Down two sets to none, you saw in his eyes, some way or other, he had to figure out the circumstances, but that indeed is what he was ready to do. And I mean, did he rededicate himself then in the in the late nineties? I mean, absolutely yes. And can you talk about that process then, from you know him, you know, being so amazing early on, and then reaching number one, and then dropping off, and then being able to come back and rededicate himself? Can you talk about that, Doctor Bill? I think all of us as coaches, teachers, yeah. leaders, we sometimes do too much. We sometimes do too much, yet we consider that our our skill set. We certainly consider that our, I guess, our, our job description. So here we go. By then, Andre was a teacher himself. In the weight room, he would tell me what he felt he needed more of. And with the same amount of respect, he would tell me what he needed to do less of. He became the teacher. So we became two teachers and two students under one roof. So his rededication was one of his voice, a greater voice. And it was a thing of beauty to see. He would talk to me about now. uh, He needed to, his legs. Keep in mind, let's say now, it's very common for the professional tennis players. It's very common. They're doing well into their mid-30s. Andre was the oldest man in the world to be number to be number one in the world at 33. Well, of course, Roger Federer just blew past that a couple years ago, and now there are many players who are having great careers in their 30s. So he was kind of that guy wisdom-wise, but then again, when they get to, let's say, the mid-20s as professional athletes, most of these tennis players have been playing since they were five. So early in their careers, they're already 15, 20-year veterans. That means wear and tear on the body, wear and tear on the mind. Sometimes they're just burned out. They're just tired, and we've seen examples of that. What Andre did was he realized that he needed to become the voice. I had to be the, let's say, the practitioner, the administrator of the programs, but he was the voice of the programs. And all of a sudden, here we go. He was 29. If you look at the history now, he won more Grand Slams after that eight than he did before. That's all on Andre. That's his credit because he knew how to prepare. Now, he was beautiful with me. He would come into the gym and tell me what he felt he needed. I'm not moving well, Gilly. I'm not moving so well recently. I don't know if it's just fatigue or if I just really need to go harder on my legs. So let's try going harder on my legs first. 
Then he would speak with Brad or Darren at that stage of his career about how much to do on the tennis court, how much more or how much less. So he was the voice. He was the architect of it. And so his commitment, I think, had to consist mostly of that, the willingness to really be a great communicator, to do what the plan called for. He hated, just in general, hated drinking water, just hated it. But he would grimace, hold it, do whatever, hold his nose, whatever. But he drank the water because he needed to hydrate. And then if you look, a, I think a pretty good, if you were going to do a profile on this warrior's mind, certainly one of the toughest, if not the toughest Grand Slam conditions-wise is the Australian Open because wherever you've been on the planet other than there, it's winter. Except there. It's winter everywhere else. You get off the plane, in our case, Qantas flight number 94 from Los Angeles International Airport, Tom Bradley Terminal, every year to Melbourne, Australia, and we were ready. Then you get there so excruciatingly hot, painfully hot, oppressively hot. He won it four times, and he would insist to the tournament director that they play him in the afternoon, the hottest part of the day. That's a guy calling it, as they say on the pool table, eight ball corner pocket. He was calling his shot. The next toughest conditions-wise, arguably, would be Miami. Because, again, it's hot, humid, and windy. The wind is going to play havoc with the ball itself. The heat, of course, is going to beat you up. The humidity is going to play havoc with the ball and you. It's just going to be oppressive. He won that one six times. So someone like yourself would have to say, okay, let me take this data, this information, and I'll tell you something about the individual, the author of these statistics. But he just became stronger and stronger physically and mentally. And I'm proud to say I was there to watch it. That's awesome, Coach. Um, a, a more general question here. You know, everyone embarks on this journey because they want the prize. They want the product. They want the yes. result. And, and, again, that is why we do it. But the process... It's more important than the product, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, yes. Can you talk about the process being more important than the product? Everything that is being asked of one, whatever the, the goal is, and how we all, once again, uh, someone like yourself who understands the connections between the mind and the heart and the body. As we often said, our war cry was, Weak legs command, strong legs obey. Weak, weak legs command you to quit. They command you to make poor decisions out there. And in life, Andre and I would discuss how many bad decisions are made at moments of fatigue or duress, physical or emotional or mental. So what is what is the actual task, the quest? So Thus, the process, right? Okay, what is what must I do to get there? That's my process. We, I, I wish I knew, Dr. Bell, I wish I knew where we heard this. I just know that this never left us. We start with the, once again, is this a winnable war? Is this something which, uh, and I believe that's, uh, I'm not sure if that was either uh, President Eisenhower or somebody who led a whole, a whole decision with, is this a winnable war? But is this something, of course, 
that you are seeing clearly. And I heard somewhere, being realistic is the most commonly traveled path to mediocrity. And we we looked at each other with that and said, okay, we're being realistic. Wow, what if my reality is actually greater than my dreams? That's a quote directly from Andre Agassi before he became the champion. That was the process because he loved the fact that he would ask me some questions to which my response was, I don't know, let's find out. Do you think I could do it? I said, I don't know, let's find out. Bring it, let's go. Do you think I can do this? Do you think I can do that? Let's find out. The only thing I can assure you is you won't have to go through it alone. I got you, I, I got your back here. So the process became identification first with himself, himself. For example, how do you respond to a loss? But let's even take that a little further in quantification to an important loss. They're all important, but some just seem to resound a little little more greatly. How do you respond to that? Are you mad? Are you upset? Is there a tantrum? Or are you just kind of locked in and say, I'm going to watch what he started doing, studying himself. It's a hard thing to do. So in his process, he became a student of the game, a student of his adversaries, but more important, a very honest student of himself, what he needed to change, what would diminish his chances of that ultimate, right, the journey, or what would enhance them. And many times he would say, I need to react differently. If you notice towards the end, let's say now, and I, I'm not a believer in jinxing and stuff like that. I don't think I could do that with these great champions anyway. Let's take, for example, Roger Federer. You'll see some traces over there. He's, 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 he's greatness. He's a champion. Nadal, boy, it's all business. They got their emotions in check. Not the, the expressions of joy. Take a look at some of Andre's videos, his tapes, towards the latter part of his career. He was a pro. He was a pro. He was not about to let his emotions be any undoing to whatever degree of his process, of his quest. So that was the, the greatest example. Scheduling as part of the process. As you know, the better you do. Now, Andre, probably the best example I can give you of that, and it's a very, it's, it's, it's a tangible one. If you finish the year in the top 10 in the world, think about that, the world. And tennis is an international sport. If you finish in the top 10 in the world at the end of the year, you're really great. You're in the top 10 in the world. Andre finished in the top 10 in the world 16 years. Just think about that for a moment. 16 years. How much change you must implement, how much re-fortification is required because names changed, the game changed, faces changed, personality of the game changed, and you have to answer. As they say, right here, I'm in Las Vegas, a few minutes up the road here on the strip. People say, call it. People are right now, 
you have to face the challenge. People are saying, I call you and I raise you. You got to be ready to call what the other people are dealing to you. Either you could call or you fold, right? Andre was calling. He could call and say, I call you and I raise you. That means I'm going to answer the bell. Whatever you guys are bringing. Some of you guys, when he was playing some of the teenagers, think about that. Some of these guys were just born or a year old when Andre was going toe-to-toe with them still. We had to answer that. We had to answer the, the, the bell and the challenge, and Andre did. And if you look at 16 years in the top 10 in the world, what that says about him and his abilities and his truth. Truth is such a beautiful concept within yourself that is no longer a concept. It becomes that foundation on which you stand and you grow. And that's, that's Andre's process, man. He, had a, he was locked in on every aspect of himself. These uh, emotions that you've talked about, truth, love, even fear, um, that we all have. Yes. When it comes to um, anyone on their quest of greatness, what do you think is the most important mental skill I love it. It's fair to say, it's fair to say that some greatness, I'm not going to say it comes easy, but depending, there's talent, which certainly can show itself as greatness. There's persistence, right? We, and I learned from a great mentor of mine, that there are very many talented, unsuccessful people out there. So you can't let it all write itself off as talent. There are many people who are persistent, who just somehow don't quite get over that hump. So you have to somewhat formulate the talent and the persistence. But now comes that next step, just really, literally that next step of I'm going to really just say confidence, and by that I mean your preparation. I have used anecdotally to my athletes many, many times how my lack of confidence affected my decisions socially amongst my peers because I struggled greatly with the English language. I didn't speak English really till I was 12. So I hid that. I hid by becoming reclusive, distant. People perceive that as, hey man, that's a tough dude, that's a tough dude, man. No, I was a scared dude. I was a scared dude. Afraid to fail. Afraid to show my weaknesses, which were many. So that became me all of a sudden. The champion, the greatness is, no, I'm coming. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to get knocked out a couple of times, but I'm going to put myself out there with my talent and my persistence. But even then, it might not go my way. And I happen to see it. If you can imagine, I get to be in my gym here with Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf at the same time. Yeah. And I still, I just look, look at them still as close as we are as a family, and just kind of wonder. With Andre, I know very well, just wonder what goes through the mind of a champion. 
I had the privilege not too long ago of in my gym having Andre Agassi, Steffi Graf, and Mike Tyson. <laughs> and you do, you just sit there and say, I just something, somehow, I need to really listen and observe. And, and even the way they say what they say, with what conviction. And you get words like, you can say the right things. You can fool anyone but yourself. And people even try to fool themselves. So I'll just speak now directly in my relationship with Andre. He called it. He called it. He took a, he took a, he put a stranglehold on doubt. Not that it was absent. He just took control of it. Doubt, uncertainty. And he then, let's say, going back to my fears of failure, was ultimate preparation. The reason I hated taking tests in school, I had many excuses. I just wasn't prepared. I always wondered why in class it was always that person or two, teacher, teacher, are we going to take that test today? And of course, we would all say, hey, shut up, man, maybe he forgot. Maybe she forgot. <laughs> and yet this person couldn't wait to be tested. Dr. Bell couldn't wait. I wanted to be that kid. How can you become that kid? Preparation. Preparation. He was ready to be tested because he had already studied and knew the answers. When Andre faces ultimate tests, for example, the Australian Open final, so hot. Miami, the final, so hot. He was ready. Just that simple. So to me, it's that. Preparation. And that's one thing that each of them, the great champions like Mike Tyson, the great champion like Steffi Graf, the great champion like Andre Agassi, they're not too far into their discussion about, let's say, their achievements before they're already tapping into preparation. So I would say preparation, and there's no way around whatever that might be, in the classroom, in the boardroom, at, in your office, on the loading dock where, where we might work, or certainly on the field of competition, preparation. There's just nothing, nothing like it. And that leads, that shows itself as confidence, not arrogance, not arrogance, confidence. And I believe there's a difference. I certainly got to see it firsthand. Um, one of the things that's fascinating me, Coach, is, uh, and I heard this one from Brett Favre when he held up, when he held up Super Bowl trophy in 96. He's holding it up. And this, we got to admit, right, if you're a football player, holding up the Lombardi Trophy has to be the best, right? Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And he said something that I've, I found really remarkable. He said, is that it? And the reason why I said that is because he didn't want it to end. Oh, and, okay, okay. And even though this was the supposed to be the best feeling, it's a very emotional player. I mean, Brett Favre would cry after wins, he'd cry after losses, but at that moment, he was numb. He couldn't, he didn't know what to feel. And so when the celebration's going on, he just kind of drifted in the shower. And then when I go and I look at, like, Chuck Knoll, who would win four Super Bowls with the Steelers, and he would go through a month of depression when he was done. Wow. Uh, Bill, <laughs> Walsh, Bill Walsh, when he won the Super Bowl, his third one, he's in the locker room, and he said, I felt like an outsider. I didn't even feel like part of the team because I knew I was done coaching. And this is moments after winning. Oh, wow, yeah, that's interesting. It, and so my question is this, is when, when we get that product, when we, because I know people have flown back from Rio with a gold medal and their thoughts were, boy, is that it? Or 
or what what next or what now sure what do you attribute that one to well the first thing that comes to mind and this is i don't know of this firsthand i'm one of those that to this day i cry when i see the movie secretariat um that the movie was so beautifully done it was just on tv again last week i sat there and watched it and i cried at the end my understanding ron turcott was the the jockey of course and then the trainer i believe it was eddie sweat was the trainer uh of course along with the owner miss chenery i think it was what penny chenery tweedy i believe um the story goes uh, having Canadian ties from the from the jockey, so obviously uh, someone out there has the the actual information. I would certainly appreciate it. But my understanding was, after Secretary retired after that great Belmont run, right, that we saw it was of course the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont that he won by thirty one lengths. Mm-hmm. What incredible! Against uh, Sham, the rival, right? Big, everything, everything could not have been scripted more dramatically than that. But that he went on one more, and I don't know if it was an actual race or an exhibition run around a track. I, that I don't know. And I'm hoping that there's even some sort of truth to this, because I love the story too much to, to dismiss it as anything less. It was an exhibition in Canada at a racetrack that he just ran around the track. At the end of that run around the track, he instinctively walked over to the winner's circle. That's where he felt he belonged. He was, that's who he was. So I'm hoping it's true. But after that exhibition, it wasn't a real race. It was just a tribute. And my, my, and I guess the trainer, um, Lucian, I think it was, I forget the last name. And then the, 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 the jockey run trick, they had Canadian ties. So Secretary did one more run. That's my understanding. After that, just run around the track, instinctively walked to the winner's circle. So what you're discussing now with these greats, Coach Noel, of course, Coach Walsh, uh, of course, Brett Favre, those are great. Those are champions. You, you can't. You can't describe or define champions without including them. Maybe that's just kind of what they, they were wired for, that one more walk to the winner's circle, that instinctive walk. That that's that's I was made for this. Everything that I did certainly subscribes to the tenets of a champion. Therefore, I don't want this experience or let's say the sense of myself to discontinue. And that's the only thing that I could in any way connect because that's who you are. And you have proven that to be uh, you. That's something a a covenant within oneself that you have proven day in, day out. Think about that. Good days, bad days. Such a, uh, and I, once again, I'm not, I don't believe I'm I'm breaching or violating any confidentialities here, but that's one of the comments that Mike Tyson made to Andre about his training that on, that Mike Tyson said, Andre asked him because he would, he was in New York. Of course he was, grew up in New York, Mike Tyson, and that he would get up at three, four in the morning to do his training. And Andre asked him, well, why? The why then? And he said, because he knew no one else was doing that. And that the, when the time came that he no longer, that he would sleep in instead and not do it, was when he knew that he, he wasn't for real in that particular declaration. So he was challenging himself. I saw Andre challenge himself all the time. 
I hear of so many champions like, once again, Brett Favre, what he did to achieve, and these great coaches, uh, Coach Wallace and uh, Coach No. So that's all I can think of. And once yeah. again, uh, I'm hoping, and, and anybody out there, if this is not a true story, don't ruin it for me. Let, let me keep that because <laughs> I love that story that he instinctively walked to the winner's circle because that's who he was. That's where he belonged, and that's where he felt he needed to be, that every time he ran around the track, the next step was go to the winner's circle. I love that. Coach, one of the um, <clears throat> pieces that I'd like to ask every guest is about these hinge moments. So the one moment, one event, one person, one decision that makes all the difference in our lives. So it connects who we are with who we become. Some of these are positive hinge moments. Some of these are negative, And we don't even know when they happen sometimes until weeks, months, years later. Although the tragedies that happen, those are immediate hinges because from that moment on, everything's different. What's what's a hinge moment that uh, that's happened in your life? Oh, wow. See, now you're going to make me cry. That's too easy. That's too easy. I'll, I'll, I literally will cry here on um, on your set here. But there, yeah, there's the faith of loved ones, the belief of loved ones, of course. Um, I grew up in... in and we all do one way or another, Dr. Bell. We, we have difficulties, hardships. But that one moment of someone's unyielding faith in you. And once again, I, I guess I should kind of protect a little bit some of the names or characterizations. But I was content. I was so content with and where I, when, I, where I, when I grew up, that era was still, meaning getting out of high school in the 60s. In those days, the Vietnam War was just uh, obviously raging. So when you get out of high school, people like myself just did not. We, college was not an option. Join the Army, get out there in the Army, or get a job at some warehouse unloading trucks. That was definitely my, my destiny. That was my direction. And I had one coach... So, and I started crying because he passed away a few years ago. Who would talk to me about my associations, my my acquaintances, the groups with with whom or with which I associated and spent my time with? Uh, as he said, he who expects little from you thinks little of you, and you surround yourself with people who demand so little of you. And he was saying they don't. They don't expect anything from you because they want all of you to have the security of each other's, once again, lack of success. And he told me, your neighborhood is littered with talented, unsuccessful people. He said, you need to get out of here. And I said, but coach, the most important thing to me is to take care of my mother. He says, if you really want to take care of your mother, get out of here. He says, go do something. And wow. And all of a sudden, he's talking to me about going to college he's making phone calls for me next thing I know I'm in college and now I'm surrounded with people who all along had not only dreamed of being in college but that was their destiny that's the next step to ultimately careers and I'm the only guy who was there in a sense by default in the sense that I had a coach who loved me so much who wasn't going to let me do anything else then all of a sudden I actually felt I belonged Socially, my insecurities, my inferiorities, 
for something in my grasp because I was amongst others who saw compassion or felt compassion for me. So all of a sudden, that's the first time in my life that I felt that I belonged as long as I could make the grade literally and figuratively. As long as I can make the grade, I belong here. I belong here as much as anyone else. All of a sudden, because we were, we were under hardship financially growing up, my mother would say, we're not poor, we just don't have money. We're not poor. We have honor, we have intelligence, and we have pride. We just don't have money. And those words, all of a sudden, I found in discussions or in awareness or in education, people actually coming to me and having discussions because they felt that I knew something. And that became my hinge moment of actually feeling that I belong somewhere. And we all want to belong somewhere. We, it feels so good to belong. It feels so good to be loved. It feels so good to have a sense of contribution um, to those of us immediately around us and those of, those of us, maybe those who aren't. And of course, for me, even to get to see the extension of what the thousands of lives that Andre has impacted with his school, literally. And you, you have heard me say this once, of that one story of the, the high school coach that was asked. And it was in the book, uh, in, the, in, in a book that they asked this one high school coach, the Boosters Club, the first, he was trying very hard to work on their character, character of his team and a very uh, oppressed uh, socially and financially, economically uh, area of the city. He drew them together as a team. And the boosters asked, he was trying to see some character and goodness and kindness and contribution. And they, the boosters asked him, coach, how good is this year's team going to be? And he said, we're not going to know that for 10 years until yeah. we see what they do when they leave here and how many people they impact and help. I love that. Well, my hinge moment of someone believing in me that I could actually, starting with my mother, actually be of help to people if I enabled myself. Kind of one of those things on the airlines, right? When they tell you, in the, in the case of loss of oxygen and those masks drop, put it on yourself first. That's the struggle for some of us who are taught to believe, no, no, take care of your loved one first. Uh, really? No. Uh, no, I'm going to put on my loved ones first. You can, because then maybe you can't help them. Not a chance. I'm going to make sure. Well, when you think about it, you say, okay, okay, I get it. So that became myself, let's say, relationship of if I do more greatly enable myself one way or another, I might be of some service to someone else, and then hopefully more and more. And it was just because someone not only reminded me, but emotionally hammered it into me that if I really wanted to help anybody, starting with my mother, I needed to break the bonds of, let's say, my limitations, break the walls or fences of my limitations, and get out of that box for crying out loud, and then make the declaration to help somebody. And that was it for me, because then to see it manifested in the ways that Andre has changed so many lives, uh, literally, Dr. Bell, sometimes I just sit, uh, I'm in the gym right now, trophies are in the next room here, I just sit and look at them and, and I cry uh, tears of gratitude. That's awesome, Coach. <laughs> My last question for you, because we could go for hours and I really appreciate <laughs> I the time. It. I love it. 
the difference between success and significance. Ooh. Can you uh, talk about that when it comes to, um, you know, this this quest? I love that. I love that. I think I, I truly think that when they say, if someone were to ask, how do you define success? And it's one of those interesting, not too cutesy a response, but how do you define success? You'll know it. You'll know it because it might be being ranked number one in the world. It might be being ranked number 150 in the world. It might be. It, it, might, it might not be. There's a difference between the success and the ideal, right? Significance, on the other hand, yeah, that's something that, of course, of what service might we be? And I'm trying to, and once again, Dr. Bell, I don't know the source of this, but a measure of someone, I've heard this, the measure of someone is how he treats people who can do him absolutely no good, <laughs> who can be of absolutely no service to him, how well does he treat those people? I love that because are you good to those that are good to you or are you just good to people? That to me denotes its own significance of your character because I think it's, I'm not gonna say it's easy. It's okay, it's, it's somewhat mathematically aligned. They're good to me, I'm good to them. There's, there's a, a kind of its own mathematical alignment there. But no, they're not very good to me, but I'm, I'm good to them. Those that can do you absolutely, who can be of absolutely no use to you, how good are you to them? That would be, once again, and the reason I say success has its own measures, but there's a strong likelihood that it won't be reciprocated. There's a strong likelihood that you might be good to some people and not have it reciprocated. Does that affect your decisions going forward? And if the answer is no, it doesn't affect uh, it's nice if it's reciprocated, but I that won't change my that won't change. Let's say my particular tenant or, or or mission statement in this case. Then to me, that's that's how I would go along the lines of both success and significance. But there's different measures to it, and the measures to success usually are positive. The measures to significance get ready because it might not even it might not be reciprocated, which of course does not feel good. And so anyway, that's how it goes. That's a great question. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Coach, um, I really appreciate the time, man. I'm, I'm so glad we got to uh, connect in Orlando and then here on the podcast. Um, if people want to, uh, you know, follow you and just learn more, where, where's, where's the best way? You know, what's interesting is I don't do social media. Uh, in, in this privilege of speaking to you, I have to ask one of my associates here to help me get on get on this particular connection here. So I don't. And you know what? I would ask anything of which, let's say, that I could be of any service. If it's okay with you, if they just kind of run it by you, run it through you, and because you know how to reach me, uh, and if you felt okay, uh, let me connect you uh, with me. Uh, I'll be happy. To, I don't. I don't. I don't have. I don't do Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I have no. I, nothing. I'm a, might be one of the last dinosaurs that you know, who doesn't do the social media. But I, I. I just don't do it. And if you would ask me why, I could not give you one really good reason or answer. I, I don't know what it is other than 
I'm in a, I'm in a time warp. Yeah, a lot of times social media is just being distracted by the unimportant, though. So <laughs> yeah, you, you stay you stay focused, Coach. Um, man, again, thank you so much for that time and, and just the wisdom you're able to share here, man. Thanks, Coach. I am so honored. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. And let's let's get together sometime soon and break some bread. I'll uh, I'll fly out to see you. Please do. I, I think you would enjoy that. Please think about that. Uh, come spend some time here at the gym with us. The people who walk in and out of here, you'll notice one thing for sure. They come in here with buckets full of dreams and wishes, and they leave here with leaving buckets full of sweat. And that's, of course, the part of the character, the champion, that is self-defined. And once again, that holds up under, under any circumstances. Thanks, Coach. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Bell. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.